I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Good to see everybody. Um, as you might be able to tell, my voice is fighting me just a little bit, but I think I got a couple sermons in me, so um, hang with me. But if at some point, if it just goes out, I'll tag Blaine in, and we should be good. So, okay. Um, so uh, welcome to everybody in the room. Welcome to you in Benton and online. I'm so glad you are joining us today. And um, as we're bringing this series kind of to an end, um, and landing the plane a little bit, I wanted to talk about something that's a little bit unique um, to Christianity. And one of the views that we have that I find um, pretty fascinating, and it's been expressed throughout history with words like common grace, um, where there's this idea that whether people are knowing God and following God, pursuing Jesus, or not, um, that every single person is experiencing the grace of God in some significant way, that love is available to them, that they can experience joy in the world, that when a, a mother holds her child or when two friends spend time together, whatever it is, um, even that physics works and like that atoms hold together and that the, the whole world works in some way, Every person that has ever lived, is living, and will ever live is experiencing the grace of God, whether they know it or not. Now, that, that's fairly unique to talk about common grace when you, t when you think about um, maybe uh, philosophies of the world and of religion, because what we're kind of demanding is that God is for every single person, whether they are in or outside of a relationship with him that he doesn't wait for people to opt in to start blessing them and loving them and caring about them. Now, I think that's pretty fun. I think that's one of the things that we can be genuinely excited and proud about in, in our history is, is this idea of common grace, which I've always found to be a little bit of an odd, you know, these old words, common grace, just doesn't sound that special. But to me, I, I just love that. In, in our tradition particularly, um, the, the Wesleyan theological tradition, um, we can kind of take that a step further with what we call provenient grace. Now, there's a word nobody uses. Provenient. Um, uh, Augustine, uh, Augustine of Hippo was the kind of the first person to talk about this. And um, to prevent, um, the, the old understanding of the word to prevent means to get there first. Um, like if I prevented you in a race, it means that I, that I won. If I, if I prevented you in a race today, it would mean that I like kneecapped you and then took off, right? But what, what they mean is that God, he gets there first and that we can never show up to a person. We can never show up to a space that God is not already 
active in pursuing the people there, which is fascinating. That means that no person in, in like the name of Jesus has ever gotten on a boat and showed up on some distant island and brought God to anyone because he's already there. What they get to do is join him in what he is already doing. They help to name God. They help to point people to Jesus. They help open his word and bring clarity and focus. Sure, but we get to enjoy the fact that God is already at work. And, and I love this because it squashes this like um, us versus them mentality that so easily creeps into the way that people can talk about um, religion, but in our world, it's not just religion. It's like tribes of all kinds. The, the quickest way to build community is to be against something or somebody. You know, it, it builds a tribe super fast. And, uh, and we've experienced that maybe in increasingly high-pitched tones in our country and culture over the last several years. You know, that the quickest way to build an identity is to say who you're against and our God just won't have it. And he has something so much better that whoever you think you're against, guess what God is for? He is for them and pursuing them and like drawing them, wanting to draw them to himself. And then it's up to them to respond or not. Now, we've been in this series where we've been talking about experiencing the grace of God, the love of God, and the joy of God in, in like the everyday stuff. That we don't have to climb a mountain. We don't have to make the right kind of sacrifices. We don't have to be in what we think of as an exclusively um, spiritual or sacred space to experience the presence of God that because he adores all of creation and has announced over all of creation that it is good, even though it's deeply broken by sin. We can experience the presence and the joy of God in every good and perfect gift that comes to us. Now, that has implications, I think, for the rest of the world. Maybe if we marry these two ideas, that God is for all of creation, that he made all of it, and, and every little bit of it, not, not just the holy stuff, but whether we're talking about baking in your kitchen or hitting a golf ball or sitting in a deer stand or going to the gym or reading a book at night, whatever it is that in that space, the grace of God is waiting for you and the presence of God is waiting to bring a little bit more of heaven to earth. If we marry that idea, with the idea that God is in pursuit, loving pursuit of every body, whether they even know to respond to him or not. Maybe we can find something a little bit electric, something that's a little more than just about us and how we feel and how maybe God gives us love, that's good. But what, what else, what else could we go? Maybe we could look at, at this verse um, just picking a few that we could pick lots from, from Psalm 40. This is David, and, uh, and he's obviously excited, and he's kind, of, he's kind of ramping up. You can picture this is, this is not the kind of psalm that someone reads sitting down in quiet tones. He's got like a confetti popper sitting nearby and an air horn. Like D David is excited about what God's doing in his life. 
He says, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on the rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. That David has this connection between I met the saving presence of God in my life. I, exp- I don't know what his situations were. He has a lot of relational challenges that we knew of. Some of them he caused. He has military and political challenges as both the military and political leader. He, he has internal struggles. Sometimes he deals with depression. I, I don't know what field we're talking about here. But he's remembering a moment when the grace of God invaded his life and set his feet on a rock and it changed everything for him. But notice that as he responds to God's grace, he put a new song in my mouth. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. That maybe we um, can fall into some of the challenges of our culture and that our relationship with God is, is just for us. Um, maybe it even feels a little wrong or even embarrassing to talk about our relationship with God reaching and impacting the lives of others in direct ways. That's something that feels a little tough. And here he makes this direct connection between how I experience God's grace and that in my response to God's love, many will see and fear, and put their trust in the Lord. That at the end of the day, this isn't just about him. This spills over into the world that God loves and towards the people that God wants to save. So, so what, what could God do with the places that you meet him in joy? What, what are the places that God could bless someone else, and that someone else could come to know the saving power of God because you experience his joy. What if, maybe we could put it this way. What if your joy is a place for someone to meet Jesus? Well, that, that's a totally different kind of conversation than maybe we usually talk about. Uh, again, maybe if we, if we think about the, the way that folks frame um, an us versus them sort of conversation uh, with people of faith in the world that we're in, and, you know, I understand that, you know, maybe people feel pressure sometimes, um, it, you know, to, to maybe be a little quiet about their faith or, or whatever it might be. But I want to look, um, I was listening to... Uh, uh, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs. How would you like that to be your name? How do I? Um, he had a, a, a position in um, in England that where he got the title Lord. Like, wow! I would just love to sign that. And my, you know, like, what's your name? Oh, Lord Brett Cheek. Man, <laughs> man, make way. You know, you need someone with a trumpet to introduce you. Anyway, um, Jonathan Sachs, brilliant man, passed away a few years ago so sweet, loved um, what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, deeply. And, uh, and he was responding, interestingly enough, to Christians, saying that we should separate ourselves from society 
because society's getting harder and harder to be a Christian in. And um, with what he, he referred to as the Benedict option. And, and he introduces this other idea that he calls the Jeremiah option, which I have to say sounds like a born identity sequel. The Jeremiah option and, and the Jeremiah supremacy. And the Jeremiah, okay, all right, sorry. Back on track. God is speaking to his people and they are going through the toughest thing they've ever gone through. Their city, their country has been conquered by a foreign country, um, by a foreign empire called Babylon. And they are not just being conquered. They are being taken in chains to another country in exile and will live there for generations. And you, you know that verse that people say a lot, and it's a good verse, Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans um, to, to give you a hope and a future. Um, that's in the context of them going to Babylon. So if you give your kid a graduation card that says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, you're talking about sending them into exile, just so you know. But just before that, in verse 4 of 29, it says, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to those I carried. Ooh, did you see this? Who is moving them from a place of safety into a place of danger? Who's doing it? God is. God is, yeah. Yep, he's up for that. For those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses, settle down, plant gardens, and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. What is God's motive to people that are this country, this empire that is so far from God, that is deeply broken, that thinks that the way to make the world right is to conquer everyone and to force them to do what we want to do. And God is sending his people to them. And God tells them, I, when you show up, I want you to be a blessing. I want you to get your hands dirty and plant gardens. I want you to build homes. I want you to throw parties. I want people to get married. I want you to bless that city you're in because if they prosper, you will prosper. And, and this is the Jeremiah option. That how is Babylon going to come to know about the saving power of the God of Israel? It's going to be because God's people were in Babylon living like heaven on earth and finding joy in the middle of it. You know, I, I wonder if, if maybe um, we have bought the world's narrative that if, if we're going to be okay, it's going to be because we remove ourselves from the world. But instead, we have this other option, this Jeremiah option, to say that the world that I'm in, the things that I do, and the way that I live my life can be a place for people to meet with the living God. Where does God send you on a regular basis? 
Where does he, does he send you to work? Does he, I carried my people from Jerusalem to Babylon. Does he carry you to work? Has he carried you into a family situation that you find extremely difficult? Has he carried you into a challenge at home or into an emotional situation that you find really difficult? Where has God carried you? And when you're in that space, how can you be receiving God's call to plant gardens, to build homes, to seek the prosperity of the place that he's sent you? Paul, when he's talking to the Colossians, um, the church in Colossae, uh, and he's kind of wrapping up um, his time with them, which Colossians is such a beautiful letter. <laughs> it's an incredibly high view of Jesus. He says, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ. We'll come back to that in a minute, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how to answer everyone. So Paul is writing to a minority group, this group of people that is in a city called Colossae, not a Jewish city, not a, definitely not a Christian city. Christianity is like a hot minute old, you know. And, and he says, I want you to pray for me that I may proclaim the mystery of Christ. Now, mystery is a bit of an interesting thing that I think sometimes we miss out on. Maybe mysteries where some of the fun is. Because he talks about when I'm talking about Jesus, I want to talk about the mystery of Christ. Now, when you talk, when was the last time you had your mind blown? When was the last time that you let something bigger than you confront you and it like opened you up in a totally different way? We're, we're not so good at that, are we? We're better at explaining and controlling and making things containable um, one of my, my favorite author, um, Abraham Heschel, he says that the Greeks studied something to understand it. Americans study something to use it. And the Hebrews studied something to see God in it. That, let's, let's just talk about gardening, something I don't know anything about. Maybe, maybe if he's right, that like the Greek mentality was to understand it because knowledge was valuable. I want to study it so that I can like wrap my head around it. And Americans, I mean, for all of the beautiful and wonderful things about our culture, maybe we miss something here because we study something to use it. So what am I going to do? What am I going to do with it? How can I make this work for me? And we just, we don't even mean to. We just bring that into every interaction. You know, how can I make this work for me? But the Hebrew person, maybe someone who's shaped by our Bible, shows up and maybe they even look at a garden and tomato plants and peppers and dirt and manure and worms and says, God, where are you here? God, I want to see you here. That means that mystery can be found underneath everything and in everything. 
And so whatever it is you approach, this could be a place to meet the mystery of Christ. The mystery of Christ. Now, obviously, he's talking about the cross. You want to have your mind blown? Let's focus on the cross. But what I'm arguing for here is that in every single thing, we can find the God of the cross waiting for us. And, and then he, he shifts um, away from just talking about how people can, can pray for him. And he says, pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Now, just using our typical framework, if someone said, like he, if he's talking to this group of Christians and they're in the vast minority in this town, and he says, be wise in how you act towards outsiders. What is the posture that immediately comes to mind? Be wise. I'm imagining, how can I pull back? How can I be careful? You know, a little bit of fear. You know, if I'm sending my kid out the door and I say, be wise, I'm kind of telling them to like put the force field up a little bit, right? Thinking about the times that I left my house and my mom was like, be wise. She was never worried about me being too good. <laughs> With me? No? Just be wise in how you act towards outsiders. What does he mean by that? Listen, make the most of every opportunity. Oh, this isn't defensive. This is offensive. This is Jeremiah option stuff. This isn't, don't, no, don't be wise and pull back. Be wise in how you move forward. Make the most of every opportunity. Opportunity. Just pop quiz. How many opportunities are under the category of every opportunity? It's just all of them, you know? And so we're talking about waiting in line to get a bag of food out a window, you know? And, and we're, we're talking about being in the lobby and wondering, can I take the last donut in the box? Because if I take the last donut, then I don't. This is, this is every opportunity I'm rolling up to the family get-together, and she's there. Oh, no, she's there. This, this, is, this is sitting in a hammock next to a lake. Every opportunity, make the most of. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. He's talking about that there is a world out there that needs to know Jesus. And every opportunity that we have to engage someone outside of the faith is a chance for them to experience you as full of grace. Can you make a list real quick of all the people that that's the first way they would describe you? Oh my gosh, when I think about John... That guy is full of grace. I mean, like, what? what did you, how can we do that? And then he says, seasoned with salt. This is an interesting little metaphor. I brought some salt with me. I brought some salt. I love to cook. Um, the uh, Greek word is artuo. Can you say artuo? I just keep wanting to say R2D2. That's not it. It's artuo. Means to prepare, to season, to make savory. And then there's a little more of the metaphorical touch, full of wisdom, to be pleasant 
and wholesome. That means that in every conversation, every interaction, there is a place for us to bring the flavor of the gospel. As Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. And if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's only good to be thrown out and trampled by men. And often I find that many Christians in our world, um, because they don't want to overdo it, they just lose the saltiness. They just skip it. And they're walking around living a life as bland and as gospel-less as everybody else because we don't want to, like, overdo it. You know, we don't want to be scary. And he's like, but the, what, the, what is the world going to do without you? Bringing, bringing wisdom and the flavor of the gospel in Jesus' name into every interaction. Now, I think most of our fear of it is we don't want to be rejected, we don't want to be dumb, we don't want to look stupid, and we definitely want to, we don't want to overdo it. Did anybody grow up around Christians that overdid it? Yes, okay, all right, this is a bit of a generation before. Look, look, and if we're talking about everything that you love, bringing every bit of joy that you have is a place to season that and bring the gospel, there is a way to overdo it. Like, let's say you love making brownies, right? And, 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 and that's just your thing. And you think, I, I want to, how do I bring the gospel there? Can I show you the way to not do it? Don't bring your neighbors brownies that look like this. <laughs> Maybe you coach a basketball team and you're like, I haven't talked about Jesus yet to my, to my basketball team. Oh, I'll get them all one of these. <laughs> Jesus is dunking on an eight-year-old. I don't know. There is, there is an entire line of these. And look, the person that makes these may be a wonderful person. I don't know. But listen, that's not seasoned. That's just giving somebody one of these. Eat it. <laughs> just eat the salt, man. Jesus loves you so much, I'm going to make you tired of me being here. I don't, this isn't seasoned. Salt goes like with things, you know? And, and, and here's, here's the thing. What is our opportunity in whatever it is that you love? This weekend, I was with some friends, and um, a couple times a year, they have this, it's called Camp of Palooza, and we just like find some place, and um, sorry to everybody else, we just like take over the campground, you know? And every time I go, Somewhere in there, there's just a conversation about Jesus that springs up. Sitting, sitting around the campfire, making, making food, going on a walk. I don't know, just sitting by a lake. Every time I'm there, this, this conversation about Jesus comes up. Little ways, big ways. You know, I, I was... I'm totally going to call out Coach Tuke on that. It was amazing. And um, I, was, uh, I was at my daughter's volleyball thing, which can I say there's a whole world there I didn't know about. Holy little girls volleyball tournaments. That's, there's a whole subculture there. And if you're going, bring a helmet because there's a lot going on. And, and in between games, my girls are wandering around, you know, and, they're, and, and, um, and they go and they spot somebody coaching um, a football team full of boys that they think might just be a little cute. And, and, and I watch one of our people that goes to our church coaching this team and just alive and lighting up. Just coaching, just alive and lighting up with this team. And I thought, there's his joy. I don't, 
he's never mentioned this to me before, and I can tell you that's where his joy is, running around in this field with these 10-year-old boys trying to teach him how to play flag football. He is way more into this than they are. You know what I mean? Like, they're just, everybody's having so much fun. And what does it look like in that space to season, to in your joy, the thing that you love, to just let the gospel come out in a way that is gentle, full of grace, beautiful, kind, not here's the salt, eat it, but natural overflow of your meeting Jesus in the thing that you love. First Thessalonians, um, Paul is writing to a group of people and just some context here. Um, <clears throat> when he met them, there were no Christians. There were no Christians in Thessalonica until he got there, right? Zero. And so when he's talking about when I met you, he's not talking about like he showed up to the church, you know, like he showed up to a bunch of pagans. And, um, and, and here's this, he just has this deep relationship with the, with the Thessalonians. <clears throat> and um, starting in verse 6, chapter 2, it says, We were not looking for praise for people, not from you or anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ we could have asserted our authority so he's, we didn't take this place of like, hey, I've got something, right? That's kind of gross. That's sort of. Instead, we were like young children among you. That these people that didn't know Jesus, he showed up as someone gentle and as someone that he allowed them to minister to him. We showed up as young children among you. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, now he's flipping the metaphor, so we cared for you. You cared for us, we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Now how great is that? That when he showed up to people that needed Jesus, it wasn't just here's the gospel. It was you cared for us, we cared for you. The gospel was shared and we shared our lives as well. Maybe, let's, let's ask this question. Whatever it is that you love, just go ahead and pull it up in your mind. Are we talking about music, reading, going for a run, making food, digging in the garden, going to work out, whatever it is, just pull it up in your mind. How can that be a place to either connect with people or serve people? How can that be a place for you to connect with people or serve people? Because people need connection. We have less connection now than we've had even though we are burdened with ways to connect with people. We're losing it. How can you use what you love as a way to connect with people? or serve people, to serve them. And that maybe in the middle of whatever that is, that this can become some spiritual practice for you where you are connecting with people and serving people in the middle of what you love, in the middle of something that brings you joy, and in there can be a place seasoned with salt for them to meet the God that is already pursuing them, that is already after them. They just need to know his name. They need to know his name. They need to know that he loves them and that he cares about them. 
And I think in the middle of our joy is about the best place that we can do it. So maybe just, just to wrap up kind of the series as a whole, your joy is a place, first of all, to meet with God, the God that announces over creation and over you, it is good. We get to name those things that we've experienced. Every good and perfect gift is coming down from the Father of heavenly lights. Every good and perfect gift is a place to name it and say, that is God loving me and coming to me. And then we get to return it back to him. It becomes a place to worship. It becomes a place to worship. Everything is both secular and sacred. All of the God's space is a place that he cries, this is holy, and it can become a spiritual practice, a place for you to carve out time and say, I'm going to make that an act of prayer. <coughs> I'm going to make that an act of worship. I'm, I'm going to bring maybe the word of God into that space. I'm going to build a little temple around the thing that I love. And then maybe our lives will be littered with temples because God's whole mission is that he is making the earth more like heaven. That earth and heaven were one and they will be again. And that in your joy, you could be someone that is knitting back together two torn pieces of fabric, heaven and earth, back together as one for forever because that's where he's going and and your joy is a place that you can be a gift to others. I think God is about the serious work of joy. It is both a blessing to us, a way that we can be a blessing to God, a way that we can help restore the world, and a way that we can offer Christ to those that need it. Let's take some time and pray. Lord Jesus, would you help us to be wise, full of grace, and to make the most of every opportunity that we would love others so much that we would share with them not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. And that because you have rescued us, we would sing to you a hymn of praise and that because of that, many would see and turn to follow you as they experience the mystery of the God that loves them. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. If you enjoyed today's message, make sure to subscribe to this channel. Feel free to share this with others that God has put on your heart. To learn more about LaCroix Church or to find your next steps, head to lacroixchurch.org. Thanks again for checking us out, and we hope to see you soon.